is Scuba Go 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 Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. On this week's episode, I'm talking to a man who's been diving since June 1988, and he's logged every dive. That's 33 years of information, and he's shared the lot with the world. Michael McFadden has dived all over the world, but focused his exploration on his homeland, that is, New South Wales, Australia. Having found, explored, and mapped over 300 dive sites, Michael decided to create a website to share his findings in 1996. That website is now the Bible for anyone diving the coastline of New South Wales and holds over 1,000 pages of information. Michael, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you doing? Uh, great. Thanks, Matt. Good, good. So this is uh, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the title of the show is Scuba Goat. And uh, I don't, don't want to blow your trumpet too much, but 33 years of diving and recording everything is truly remarkable. Um, yeah, I sort of. That's my nature is to record stuff and keep track of everything that I do so yeah so where did it where did it all begin I mean obviously um you love the water because you're an Australian that lives near the coast how did you get into diving um well I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney near La Perouse and spent a lot of time down at the water you know snorkeling swimming even as a kid and then um in 1988 I decided I was going to learn to scuba dive which I did um, and just kept doing it and kept doing it and became addicted to it. And then you, you started doing the, the, the mapping? And yeah, well, originally um, I was doing a lot of diving with my brother and sister-in-law, and we decided that we'd try and look at different places, um, not just the w- spots that people were going to. And so we tried, you know, just different places, especially in the eastern suburbs. Um, and then I started writing a few articles for Divelog um, magazine. And uh, basically I started just doing uh, articles about individual dive sites and including the ones that we'd sort of explored ourselves. Um, and it just grew from that. And the the, the website itself, um, you know, were you in information technology at the time? Because at 96 is quite early for websites, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I um, Well, I, you know, I had all these hundreds of articles about uh, the different dive sites that I'd dived and everything. I had all the articles. And uh, back in June 96, I had to go to hospital for a minor operation. And while I was recovering, I decided I'm going to build a website. Um, so I was convalescing and had my laptop computer and back in those days I wasn't actually in IT but I looked after the IT in the area where I worked because it, you know it, the place I worked for we didn't have we had two or three IT pe- people for the whole organization yeah so you had to look after your own stuff so I decided I was going to build a website and I'm pretty sure back then there wasn't even any dive sites or diving websites in Australia, let alone the world. There was hardly any. And so I decided to – I'd put every article I had up and try and put photos with them and some maps that I'd drawn to go with the articles and it just grew from that. And and was it kind of – did you have a kind of direction that you wanted to go with the website or was it just because you wanted to – 
keep a record of your findings and, and your passions? Um, no, it wasn't me keeping a record of it for myself. It was to provide the information for everybody else. Obviously, all these articles had been in Divelog, but unless you kept every Divelog, you didn't have access to that. Yeah. So I decided that if I put it all on the website, people would be able to um, access that no matter when, if they became a, a, you know, a diver in 98 or 2000 or something, all my articles about the different sites would be there for them to, to look at and read. Yeah, yeah. So basically it was to help other people. Yeah. You know, um, understand uh, what was out there, you know, and, and also some of the shipwrecks, the history of it. Because um, I did a fair bit of researching, far more than what there was in existing publications. And and uh, uh, and there were a few dive books around then, mm. but they were a bit basic about each, you know, shipwreck or, or dive site in the New South Wales because there was a couple for New South Wales. So I tried to make them a lot more comprehensive. And uh, Have you got a favourite that sticks out in mind from the early days? Uh, no, they were all great. You know, everything yeah. was good. I actually learnt to dive down at Jarvis Bay. Um, one of the uh, guys who used to work with me, um, he was a half-owner of uh, Pro Dive at Penrith. Mm-hmm. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore, and he was an instructor, and so he taught myself and a couple of other people from work to dive, and we did it all down at Java Space. So Java Space has always been a special place, I suppose, because that's the first place I did any real scuba diving, even though I had done a few um, things overseas, um, you know, in Tahiti and on a cruise around the Pacific, mm. um, you know, a resort-type course. Yeah. So, like a like a tri dive kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, one was a tri dive, and the other one was at Club Med at Morea um, in in the French Polynesia, mm. and where we every day for four or five days we did this you know sort of course, and then finally they took us out and we did a dive off the reef, mm. and it was when I got back to Sydney after that. That's when I decided I wanted to learn properly. Yeah, and at what point did you go? You know, I've, I've now learned. I'm going to get a boat and I'm going to do this on myself. Well, I didn't really back then, I suppose. Um, I, I started diving with um, some people in late 88 and they're still my friends today and I still, you know, dive with them yeah. regularly. Um, I met them on the first boat dive I did in Sydney. And so... That was on a charter boat down on off Royal National Park, and then I ended up half owning a, a private boat that we dived from with the bloke who owned that business after he sold the business, yeah. and dived with him for a long, long time. Um, so yeah, it just expanded from there. We were talking. Uh, I felt felt everyone else I was talking to you yesterday, and you were saying about the um, the use of the boat and the way that you. You know, rather than moor up, <clears throat> excuse me, moor up, do a bit of bit of a drift and see what was around. And have you always been quite a, a natural kind of? Have you felt that desire to explore, even as a kid? Yeah, I've always, growing up, as I said in the um, La Perouse area, we used to go down and explore the old um, um, gun emplacements down at La Perouse and 
over at Little Bay and everything. So we, you know, my parents didn't know for a long, long time that we did that. <laughs> I think I was well into my fifties when I told them about it. But they, um, yeah. So we've always liked exploring. Back in the early nineties, we used to do a lot of um, diving where we would explore the coast especially of Royal National Park and off uh, Botany Bay National Park, north and south of Botany Bay. So we'd run around with the depth sounder and, oh, that looks might be a reasonable spot. Mm. And sometimes we'd do it as a drift, so half the people in the bay would jump in the water and do a one-way dive and then come up, and then the other half of the boat would either start there if they'd come up and say, oh, it's not that great. Mm. We'd either start there or if they said, oh, it was pretty good, we'd go back. Yeah. So we found a lot of sites that way. Um, the pe- people previously didn't dive, and we named a lot of them. A lot of sites already had names, but mm. we gave a lot of um, names to sites. You know, some of them, you know, pretty funny. One of the ones is a dive site called Pizza Reef that was named by someone else. But then we discovered some dive sites near it. And we call them KFC, as in Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Macca's, as in McDonald's, and uh, Aporto, and a whole bunch of different names. Uh, so we, we called all those ones because they're all very close to it. Yeah. Because yeah. those shops are always pretty close yeah, to each other. Yeah, like where we've just had coffee. That's right. So, so we name name them after different people, and, and, that, and other people have actually named at least one dive site after me. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I should expect you've had a few now. Uh, no, no, not really. I don't name them after myself. Yeah, fair one. To be honest, when I was working out in PNG, um, at two feet, you know the location, and uh, we explored outer reefs and, and found more reefs. And rather than name them, you know, take the kudos and put it in my name or anything like that, I gave them to the PNG boys. And just to put their family name on them was like a huge privilege. Um the, the, the thanks that they had for having their own name on something that, you know, they assumed they wouldn't have any kind of say on. Yeah, and I, I've sort of, I've, I suppose I, for most part, follow the Captain Cook um, tradition of naming things and make them, name them after the bleeding obvious, yeah. you know, which is if you have a look at the east coast of Australia and all the spots that Cook named as he went up, you know, Point Perpendicular and Mount Warning, they're all very obvious names yeah. as to why he called them that. And I've always tried to do that, you know, um, Anchor Reef because there was stacks of anchors there. <laughs> um, GT Reef we called because, it, look, there's a – it's actually a, a radar for the airport, weather radar, I think, for the airport, and it looks like a golf ball on a tee. So we oh, right. It, Golf T Roof, GT I thought, I, roof. Thought you, I thought you were going to say Giant Trevally then. No, no. <laughs> so, you know, we've always done things like that and um, tried to name them after something. Yeah. So what was it, when, when you first started, you know, going and exploring, what was the kind of extent of the dive locations that were already mapped and you knew where to dive? There wasn't many because way back then, nobody, there was no dive up boat running out of Botany Bay, for example. Mm. Um, so... Basically, nobody dived out of there. Royal National Park, there were three charter boats running out of there, Mm. um, but they tended to only do the same sites. So there was like a few sites here and there, but nothing in between. And so we did a lot of exploring in between those sites and found some other really good ones. Mm. Yeah, 
some of them are great sites, and you, but you can't get to them because they're in close to the reef, so you need really calm days before you can dive them and, yeah. and that. So, um, yeah, it was just trying to fill the map in, I suppose you could say, in yeah. between. And it's a bit like even, you know, Bear Island. Way back when I first dived Bear Island, it was Bo- uh, Boxing Day 1988, I remember. And we went down there and it was pretty awful weather and and uh, very dark and dirty. Anyway, I went down and dived it and and then, you know, started diving a lot there. It took well over 10 years before I discovered there were two other reefs off there. And when asking people, nobody knew they were there. Yeah. Because the visibility was never good enough to see across to them. Right. And it was just looked like sand in between. And the only reason I found them was because I, one day it was really good visibility, and I, oh, what's that? <laughs> well, I'll go have a look. Yeah. And found a whole new series of reefs. What the hell? So, but in the time since then, they're actually fairly easy to find because the sand's washed out and a lot of rocks have appeared, which joins them up a bit. Mm. So it's not as hard as when I first found it to find yeah. it again. Yeah. So. And I suppose, you know, talking about visibility and stuff, I suppose you'll have seen the difference in the water possibly getting a bit cleaner with being, with people being more aware of conservation. Yeah, certainly the water in Sydney is a lot cleaner than when I first started diving. Um, in places like Botany Bay, um, the Georges River and Cooks River are heaps cleaner than before. I used to live at Tempe which is on the Cooks River. Mm. And when I first moved there, it was just brown mud. By the time I actually left there, it you could see the bottom because yeah. um, they cleaned up, you know, made laws um, stopping people dumping rubbish into the, you know, straight into the river mm. and also had traps to catch silt and stuff like that from the runoff. Mm. And the same as the ocean. The ocean's been a lot cleaner since they made the deep ocean water outfalls for the sewerage. Mm-hmm. Um, used to be down off Royal National Park, we used to get a lot of really dirty water. It doesn't seem to happen now, and all I can imagine is that it was. It sort of coincides with the change of the sewerage outlet, um, that all that dirty muck that used to come out used to somehow, I don't know, help other stuff grow or make it filthy I don't know yeah and it's been much better since then yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens I noticed that um, a post went up yesterday about the ferries that they're going to put in alongside Bear Island yeah and the thing is that at um, certainly Bear Island if you track it there's been so much dredging work done in Bear Island, in Botany Bay over the years. Mm. First, there was the the main runway. Then that was extended. Then they built um, the wharf area, the whole Port Botany area. Then they built the third runway. Then they built the extra wharves. Um, every time after that, it's been really silty and dirty and and everything. Mm. Um, at the moment, it's, there's a big long gap between any dredging being done in Botany Bay, so it's really good. Mm. Um, the life's much better than, as I said, when I first started. There wasn't that much at Bear Island really to see because all the sponges were stunted and mm. um, because it was all silt all over them from all the dredging that had gone on. Yeah. Because even though they might dredge it now, it seems that the stuff just floats around and around and 
it, it's probably easily stirred up on the bottom because it hasn't settled down. Mm. And with the the fact they want to put these two wharves in, one at Kernel and one at La Perouse, it's not a good idea as far as I'm concerned because, one, they're way too big, they're huge. Mm. And also with all the work they're going to do for them, it's going to, again, stir up all the, um, the sediment because they're going to have to dredge to because of the size of boats they're talking about coming in there. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what, hap- what happens. I mean, I, I'm not a massive, I'm not a coral kisser or anything, but I do care about what goes on underwater. And one of the things that we do have here and you know the rest of the world don't see is the, the sea dragons. Yeah, and the sea dragons were certainly really affected by the dredging mm. because when the dredging was done for the um, third runway and also for the... Um, more recently for the port expansion, sea dragons just disappeared in numbers. Mm. Um, Bear Island used to have quite a few of them. I once counted 35 on a scooter dive right around the whole reef. Um, I don't think I've seen one for 10 years on the western side. Really? And I've seen one or two on the eastern side. Um, And the same even over at Kernel at Inscription Point and the Leap and that. Again, there used to be in the 30s or 40s sometimes mm. you'd see on a dive. The numbers there now, ever since the last two lots of dredging, have only ever, you might get into the teens and mm. that's about it. Yeah. Oh, well, I must admit, I've only dived over that side, I don't know, a handful of times, 10, 15 times. I think the most I've seen on one dive is like two or three. Yeah, that's right. And you used to see a lot more. Yeah. And and again, I think they're obviously very affected by fine silt particles in the water. Yeah, they must be. They've got to be. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so going back to your exploration and when you first started out, um, what, what kind of equipment, what kind of tools were you using to be able to translate what you were seeing underwater to your pen and pencil? <laughs> Was it all in your head? <laughs> <laughs> uh Pencil and a slate, yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, most of it was that. Um, trying to draw a diagram of uh, of the site using just a pencil and a bit of slate. And actually, it's I'm still amazed that some of the ones I've done are fairly accurate. Yeah, you know, considering when I did them way, way, way back in the nineties, early nineties. Um, even the one ones of Bear Island that I did way back then, I actually found some other maps that were drawn by other people even before me mm. and when I compare mine to them I think oh, it's as if I copied off them but I didn't <laughs> because I didn't even know of them um, and now that um, it's been mapped a lot better using GPS and everything like that at the moment mm. um, some of the stuff I did oh yeah that's pretty accurate yeah um, the scale might be out a little bit in some of the stuff I did, but other than that, it was pretty good. So, yeah, it was just a matter of doing that. And when I'd come up after a dive, I'd write down what I remembered in a paper log book yeah. back in those days, um, just trying to remember, you know, different things, how long it took to swim that section of it and and then turn left and yeah. go for two minutes or something like that. So take into account a little bit of current and yeah that's right so it was just yeah all done manually what the hell it's impressive very impressive 
And uh, you just mentioned about, um, I'm sure he doesn't mind Marco being mentioned. He's, he's scurrying around all over the place with his, because uh, he, he's using a GPS system, isn't he? Yeah, um, that's right. And he, when he first started proposing this, he, he sent me, well, asked me a few questions and then he sent me um, some drafts of what he'd come up with. And uh, I made comments on it and told him where he needed to fill in spots that he'd missed that he didn't realise that there was a reef, you know, a little bit across some sand and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's coming out really good. And the good thing is we're complementing each other. He's um, referring people to my website Mm -hmm. um, on his website that he's got them uh, on, and I'm – putting there on my website smaller versions of them mm-hmm. and again i refer people to his website to get a bigger fuller version of it yeah well i mean it's a brilliant example of um you know scuba diving and how it brings a, a it forms a community everyone's willing to help each other for the most part and um you know you sharing everything that you've done over the years and it's enabling this kind of um progression yeah, and I mentioned to you when we were talking yesterday that um, one of the things about a lot of the shipwrecks and everything that I've written about, I've got a lot of information from people who um, their relative was on that ship when it sank or they served on that ship before it sank or during the war they were there when it sank. Hmm. Um, and that's a lot of that. The war stuff's died off lately because obviously the – um, people from World War Two are now approaching a hundred, and yeah. not many of them left. But you know, fifteen, twenty years, or twenty years ago, um, I used to get a lot of people, you know, especially American servicemen, who'd contact me. Oh, my kids bought me a computer for my birthday, and first thing I did was Google the name of my ship, mm. and I found your website. <laughs> And so they'd send me information and photos and, mm. um, you know, different things, stories about their time on that ship or when it sank and everything. And you could never have found these people, you know, except for the internet. Yeah. Um, so I've, you know, tried to expand and expand each of those pages. I still get a few people tell me that, oh, my dad was on that ship and his, his um, diary from that time. And they'll send me copies of the diary. Yeah. So oh, it must be uh, rather uh, what's the word? Kind of special, I suppose. Yeah, it is, and especially you know a lot of these blokes, and they were obviously all blokes. Mm. They um, you know they were in their eighties and into their nineties, and you know and they would say, "Oh, that was really good. I'm really you know pleased to read about all that and what happened to the ship afterwards." Yeah. You know how salvage work was done on it and again i've been lucky that you know i've been over in um in the solomons and met up with some of the blokes the australian guys who were over there and did the salvaging Mm -hmm. um in the 60s and talked to them about it and they've told me stories about it and put it down on paper because none of that existed nobody had these stories down on you know paper about the wrecks yeah and yeah it's not going to be 100% accurate because obviously one person's idea of what happened is going to be different to someone else's, Yeah, even yeah. The, if they were both there at the same time. But I've tried to um, 
you know, put that down. Well, somebody said this happened, but someone else said this happened. Yeah. But it's a more accurate version than someone just guessing what happened, isn't it? That's right, exactly. And, uh, yeah, and that's been really good. And what what are you doing uh, currently? Are you you still doing any writing? Um, I mean, externally, because you've you've written for a couple of magazines, haven't you? Just one or two. Yeah, no, I stopped (laughs) writing a few years ago. I did. My last thing I really wrote about was shipwrecks. I decided to write an article a month for Divelog about every shipwreck that I dived. Mm. And after 10 years, I ran out of <laughs> out of um, ships to write about. It took me about eight weeks, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I did 10 years worth. Some of those, you know, obviously some wrecks, there might have been two or three or four articles on, um, especially like the Coolidge over in Vanuatu. You know, mm. I did a lot because there's a lot of different dives and I wrote about the history and the – of the ship and everything like that, mm. but and salvage works and things like that. So that was really the last stuff I did, except when I went to, um, I think, Scarpa Flow. I wrote about the wrecks over in Scarpa Flow. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sort of not writing much except to put it on my website now. Yeah. So Scarpa Flow, I saw a, um, a little video probably about a month ago now. On the, uh, I can't was it called the Royal Oak or the Oak? Yeah, the Royal Oak. You done that one? No, you're not allowed to. Are you not? No, it's um, Wargrave. So uh. very few people have ever been able to dive that. They did last year or the year before because it was a seventy fifth anniversary or something right. like that a few years back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they they did some studies on on that. Um, so, yeah, I haven't dived that. That'd be the best wreck there, but you can't dive it. Yeah, yeah. And what's – in fact, hold on. Let me just bring it up. There was a couple of questions that popped up online when I said that I was going to be talking to you today. Ah, uh, shout out for Maxine Hayden. She says, what's your favourite wreck dive and why? Uh, well, I know Maxine. Um, <laughs> it's actually just down <laughs> south of where she lives. Well, in Sydney anyway. I'll talk about Sydney. The, mm-hmm. the best – Wreck is the Tugra, the wreck of the Tugra down off Watermola, Marley Beach in Royal National Park. Um, it's always a great dive, lots and lots of fish. Um, it's easy to see in one dive. It's 45 metres, 46 metres mm. deep, but, it, you know, it's easy to explore. We've seen some amazing stuff on there, you know, greyness, sharks, seals, um, I haven't seen a sunfish on there, but a lot of other people have. Really? Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty amazing dive, that one. Hey, I tell you what, just just thinking off, um, there's, there's a lot of people that will be listening in from outside Australia. And I know a lot of the reaction I get when I'm talking to buddies around the world, and you say Australia, and the first thing that comes to mind is bloody big sharks. Have you had any... Um, shall we say, close encounters with, with our little residents? And no, I've never seen a great white or a tiger Wow! Um, in all the dives I've done. Uh, I know people have seen both. Yeah. Um, in New South Wales, you know, they've had great whites up at Southwest Rocks at Fish Rock and um, people who've seen tigers, sharks um, off Sydney. Mm. Um, no, I haven't. I've, I've seen... Um, a bull shark way up on the barrier reef, but that was 
closer to one of my friends than it was to me. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting to watch as they approached each other. <laughs> it was a little startled look. Yeah, well, he didn't really know what was coming towards him because he was looking through his camera. Yeah. And so all he could see was a little shark, <laughs> whereas we could see a big shark. <laughs> and actually, it ran away from him because he was big, big yeah. bloke. Um, so, yeah, I've seen a, a couple of other um, more, you know, potentially dangerous sharks off Sydney. Mm. Um, swam in big schools of hammerheads over in the Philippines and, and everything, but that's not scary. No. Because hammerheads are harmless. Yeah. Um, Amazing feeling, though, eh? Yeah, that's right. Um, that was a couple of hundred there. Um, and I've had bronze whalers been doing deep wrecks up off um, the northern side of Sydney and had bronze whalers swimming around and around and around us while we're doing decompression. That's not necessarily great. <laughs> They're potentially dangerous, but yeah. Um, yeah so, have you seen any any encounters with the oceanic white tips or anything like that? No, no, nothing. I've seen, you know. I've seen, you know, up in the tropics and that, seen some yeah. other sharks and some of them you think, oh, what was that species? And you're not sure. Yeah. Because you just saw a fleeting glimpse of it. Mm. But, yeah, the, nothing like that. But as I was saying before about the sunfish off Sydney, well, I've seen um, two sunfish while diving in Sydney and they were fantastic yeah. to see. That was just amazing. Um, and we're lucky people have seen whale sharks off Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, that's very rare, but people have. Uh, so, and now uh, one thing that's changed a lot, turtles. Mm -hmm. We never, ever, ever saw a turtle in Sydney. Really? Whereas now there's resident turtles in quite a few places. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one at Shelley Beach at the moment. I think there's has been one at Bear Island, but it's it had... Um, uh, fish hook and line on it, mm. and they've taken it away. They took it off it, and um, they haven't put it back there yet. But um, we never used to see, you know, mm. any. You know, and if you did see one, you saw one, you know, every five, six years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, th I think you've got to be able to, you know, point out to those people who haven't dived Australia much is that um, you don't expect sensational diving off such a large city but the, the 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 variety of species that you can see when you dive this coastline is fantastic yeah and that's that's correct i think it's probably the really the only major city in the world that's got diving mm. like we you know like we've got um you go and have a look at bear island inside botany bay mm. um you can see different types of anglerfish you can see so many different types of pipe fish and pipe horses and seahorses and mm. sea dragons and nudibranchs um, and a lot of them are tropical species that mm. you know end up down here and we do get other tropical species you know fairly often things like butterfly fish and um, other um, smaller fish you know mm. mostly juveniles yeah. you know you get um, lionfish firefish um, in Sydney. But to be honest, if I was never able to dive anywhere else, like now <laughs> <Yeah>. in COVID, <laughs> 
Sydney's great, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't be unhappy. Yeah. I can understand that. I mean, I'm I'm spoiled. I, I dive the tropics and warm waters all the time. So when I, when it came to diving in Sydney, it was a bit of a shocker. And the missus is the same. We like the warm water. And with COVID hitting, it's just been a massive eye-opener to what is on the doorstep. Yeah, that's right. And um, and even I've got some friends who didn't do much diving in Sydney because they used to always be diving overseas. And mm. because of COVID, they've had to, well, dive a lot more in Sydney. And yeah. they've, you know, they're converts <laughs> yeah. um, to how good it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've been diving, you know, probably five times a week. Yeah. Oh, uh, bloody hell. Yeah, I've not been diving that much, but um, – now that we just had the phone call, I'll be getting my wetsuit and probably diving this weekend. Um, but yeah, it's been a bit—it's been a huge eye opener, and I'm not so much of a princess now, so that works. <laughs> <laughs> on the uh, on the other side of the scale from from sharks, uh, Victoria Gray is that another lady that you know. I know of her. Yeah, uh, she says, "What's your favourite nudie branch and why?" <clears throat> I don't know. There's just so many of them. And uh, I think probably my favourite at the moment is the donut and then brotha, mm. mainly because we discovered it about 10 years ago down off uh, Royal National Park at a site called Barron's Hut mm. in the Split. And until we found that there, it had only ever been found at Cabbage Tree Island off Port Stephens, mm. just off the entrance to Port Stephens. And it was thought to only live on that island or just around that island. But now we see it at two or three different sites down here. Yeah. Um, and they're a beautiful nudibranch, quite a large one. But just because we've discovered something that, you know, nobody thought lived anywhere except in one small spot. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean, the nudibranchs around here is, is simply fantastic. I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. And it's just, it's a shame that I'm getting into my mid-40s now because the eyes are going and sitting here with me reading glasses on. But taking photographs underwater, um, that's clearly something that's changed over the years for yourself. And uh, when we're looking at the macro and you've got people like Steve Coots with cameras that are just ridiculously good at getting one and two millimetre shots of these tiny little fellas. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing way back, you know, I think my second camera was in the Conus and really it had a macro set up, but it didn't take very good macro shots and um, certainly not to the extent of even a cheap, cheaper camera does nowadays. Yeah. Like I don't have an SLR or a huge big setup, but I can get really good photos with the setup I've got because of the way it's a good camera Yeah, uh, for taking macro and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, people really weren't taking much – uh, many photos of macro back then because it was way too hard. Yeah. Whereas now it's, you know, really fairly easy, yeah. even with an inexpensive camera setup. So it's certainly exploded in the number of people who do underwater photography. Mm. You know, mm. Certainly 25 years ago you'd have, you know, if there were 20 people on a dive, one person would have a camera. Yeah. And that's probably about it. Yeah. And it's now – Probably, you know, three quarters of the people have a camera. Oh, yeah. I couldn't go diving without my camera. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Even if I'm just carrying it as a weight. 
<laughs> and over the years, I've sort of had different ones, and then I went for a period without a camera. Yeah. Then I had a video camera for a while. Then I went periods without it. Mm. And I, I sort of oscillate a bit between taking it and not taking it. Yeah. So, well, we were, we were talking yesterday, and you're saying about the, the the macro, and you go out diving, you see all the the good stuff, you see the fish, and then you start looking at macro, and then all of a sudden, there's a whole new realm of critters that you've not actually been privy to because you've not been looking for them well that's right and um <clears throat> to be honest uh way back when i first started diving my sister-in-law you know she um came diving with us and then finally she got some prescription lenses in the mask <laughs> yeah. and we took her down on a diver oh afterwards she's saying what's that what was that thing you were pointing at Nudibrank, like we've been pointing out to you on all the other dives. <laughs> I've never seen one before. <laughs> she hadn't bothered telling us that she couldn't see what we were pointing at. <laughs> so it became a whole new um, adventure for her because it was yeah. like she started diving again because <laughs> all these things she'd never seen or been able to see. Yeah. Um, so she's just been doing the polite nod at the end of the dive. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty funny there. The, oh, what? You didn't say anything about that you couldn't see those things. <laughs> so, Brilliant. So she never even knew what we were talking about. She never even asked us about them. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and again, that's the thing with uh, – it does open up a whole new realm of of diving. And, yeah, you know, I don't like the word muck dive, which is what some of the people call it. And mm. um, even there was a, a – Dive resort up in Papua New Guinea and used to always say, oh, the muck diving, muck diving. That's, I don't reckon that's a good description of what it is. No. Yeah, I much prefer macro dive, you know. Yeah, yeah. Muck makes it sounds like it's rubbish and, and yeah. not real good, but a macro dive, all right, it's small stuff. You're looking at all the small stuff. Mm. And I, I can't actually – I know there's a bit of a, you know, quite a few places that say, oh, yeah, the, the term muck diving originated here, and there's three or four places around the world that claim it. Um, but I agree with you. Um, I worked on Koh Tao in Thailand for a number of years. Never really saw much macro because I was always teaching courses. And now that COVID's kicked in and I've got friends that still live there and they're diving, they're looking for macro, and the macro that's there is simply fantastic. And I never never seen anything like it, but it's certainly not muck. <laughs> no, that's right. And but you know that's why I don't like the description muck. I refuse to use it. Mm. Um, places like Tulumban up in Bali, mm. you know, it's just amazing. It's black sand, and there's just tiny little outcrops of a bit of coral or a bit of weed growing. Mm. And you go from one to another, and there's just amazing stuff there. Yeah, um, all small. And that's not to say you don't see big fish on that when you're diving there, but all the small stuff, you know, you've got all these nudibranchs and octopus and uh, pygmy um, seahorses and stuff like that that, you know, obviously you don't see in other places. Mm. And yet it's just fantastic. Yeah. I did my first, actually talking about black sand, the, my first trip I ever did to um, Lembe. Lembe Straits, and um, I can remember descending down on the first dive, and we were only going like eight, nine meters, and all I could see as I was descending was black sand. There wasn't a, a, an ounce of coral. There was no 
fauna or flora, and I, I was like, in my head, thinking, oh, Jesus, what the hell is this all about? And it's only once your eyes focus and you actually really start looking, the whole thing just came alive. Yeah, and that that's what it's like at Tulumba. You know, it's just all these – it's all black sand, and you might have a, a one bit of rock or a little bit of coral or something like that. Mm. And it's not, not big, like, you know, the size of a, you know, I don't know, lid of an esky. Yeah, that that's how big it is, and yet there's you might find four or five different species on there. Yeah, um, and just exploring and looking around, then on the sand itself, you see stuff. Mm. You know, you just got to look for it. You got to know what you're looking for, and that's yeah. one of the things. It's a bit like um, things like Sydney pygmy um, pipe horses. Mm. Like obviously they've been around in Sydney for a long, long time until they were first discovered. Mm. Um, and I could never find them until someone actually pointed one out to me. And then after that, they're relatively easy to find yeah. once you know what you're looking for. But back when that was first discovered as a species. So um, do, do, you, do you particularly look for something that it resides on or feeds on? Or? Yeah. Yes, there's the weed that they, it lives on. But then you look for the different movements. If there's a little bit of surge, the weed moves in one way yeah. and the the pipe horse moves just a little bit behind it. Like yeah. It's not in the same sink as that. Yeah. And that's one of the things. Nighttime, they're a bit easier to find because sometimes their eyes shine back at you. Mm. But in the daytime, that's what I look for. Yeah. See, it's rare for me to find something at night time because by the time the sun goes down, it's whiskey o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what's um, what's on the cards for you next then? Um, doing a trip next week up or the week after the next up to the North Solitary Islands. Going back up there, that's a place I really love. All right, we out, go, of, out of Woolai? Yeah, we go to Woolai. Um, our dive club's booked Um two one-week trips in a row oh, up yeah. there. So we've got 30 people going up over the two weeks to dive there. Yeah. Um, I booked on a trip in, when's that, October, mm. out to the Yongala and to the reefs out off Townsville. Oh, that'd be amazing. Um, I've done that before. I did that, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. Mm. Um, so I'm doing that again. So, which which company are you going out of with? That? Uh, there's a, a dive operation called Kalinda. Okay, dive boat. It's a really old boat. Yeah, um, but I've been on it a few times. Um, been on it twice there before. Once just for a weekend, and the other was for a week. Yeah. Um, but I've also done a trip uh, around Cape York okay. with them, from Cape York down to the Great Detached Reef and Rain Island. Mm. And that was some amazing diving up there because really they're the only operator that does that. Okay. Um, right. Some over the years, some operators have done parts of it or done it once a year. But at the moment, they're the only one who does does that. You can do the wreck of the Quetta, mm. which is right up off um, Cape York. Mm. And it's almost as good as the Yongala in terms of fish life. It's an amazing wreck, yeah. Um, but very affected by currents because it's in in the Torres Strait, so it does get really strong currents. You've got to dive it right at only at the peak of the tide. Yeah. Um, so how far offshore do you go when you go to Townsville? 
Um, long way out from from Cape Bowling Green, which is where uh, where the wreck of uh, the Yongala is. The reefs are probably 40, 50 k's maybe out, the furthest one that we go to. Mm. Um, so that was really good out there. And they're in good condition, eh? Yeah, yeah. And again, there's no dive operator other than this boat that goes out there now um, because the other ones that used to run out of Townsville don't anymore. Well, thankfully, we're recording this, so I'll, I'll keep that detail and <laughs> get ourselves sorted on that one as well. Yeah. So, that's, that's definitely a hot spot that I'd want to hit. <clears throat> yeah, and like our, our dive club, we've sort of been chartering this boat for a, quite a number of years, mm. um, once a year or something like that. Mm. So, well, we, we uh, me and the missus, we, we plan to do uh, the North Solitaries earlier this earlier this year. What are we in? No. Last year, uh, late last year, and uh, we got to um, Woolye, but the sea conditions changed, changed, and we just missed out on everything. The yeah, and that's, that's the problem that you know you encounter up there. We went up there in November um, for f- four days of diving. We only did three because mm. the second day was just way too windy and rough to get out there. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of perfect at timing things wrong at the moment. Because we, we started in Byron and ended up three days dive and we got one dive. And then down at North Solitaries, zero dives. So yeah, it was a coastal trip with a lot of dive equipment that we didn't use. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's one of the problems with diving in New South Wales. You, you can get very bad weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll wrap it up for today, Michael. Thank you very, very much for coming and spending the time to come in and talk to me. It's been an absolute pleasure I mean that. I truly mean that. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, to meet you and listen to your story. Thank uh, you, uh, Matt. I'm happy to come along and and talk and just you know, diving is my passion. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something I, I try and do as often as I can. Um, so yeah, and again, I you know tried to help other people with my knowledge. Mm. You know, gained over thirty three years and well over 4,000 dives to help them um, have a better time. And I've got to say, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to smoke, blow smoke up your bum, but, um, you know, speaking to the missus yesterday and, and I was just reiterating what you've done for other people, effectively. You put all this online and and not not actually wanted anything for it. Just, just the, your own generosity is fantastic. And I thank you very much for that. Yeah, thanks. It, you know, certainly... Over the years, it's cost me a lot of money to keep the website going <laughs> and buy different software for it to run on, and and the hosting and the everything like that. But it's it's something I'm putting back into the into the diving community. Well, I don't think anyone can deny Michael's selfless contribution to the diving community. So, if you're looking for information on diving anywhere in New South Wales and indeed many other global locations, simply Google Michael's name. That's Michael McFadden, and he'll be the first one that pops up on page one in Google. Failing that, click on the link in the show notes below. Before we close out today's show, make sure you hit subscribe, as next week I have the absolute pleasure of talking to the man who introduced the global dive community to human factors. That's Mr. Gareth Locke. Coming next week. Finally, uh, seeing as we're talking about Sydney, I just want to give a shout-out to one of my favourite places to eat lunch. Uh, It's an absolute taste sensation, and that's Marley's Eatery, and it's in Elizabeth Plaza, North Sydney. Every day when you go down there at lunchtime, you'll see queues ramming out the door. 
say hi to Mark and the team and make sure you let them know that I sent you and you may even be treated to an extra helping of a kick in the face. You'll see what that is when you get there. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. This is Scuba Goat Under the Sea. The podcast for the inquisitive diver.